We've been looking at uh, Jesus on prayer, and we're specifically into what I would, would be called the Lord's Prayer pattern. Now, those same denominations that we mentioned that use the, the three-year cycle of reading Scripture, all of them would have stressed, and it was a practice in the early church, to memorize the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus tells us not to use vain repetition as the Gentiles who think they'll be heard for their many. So some people misinterpret that to, to think that all prayer has to be spontaneous to be truly from the heart and so forth, and you can't read or pray pre, someone else's pre-written prayers. That's nonsense. But you do have to, if you're going to read pre-written prayers or if you're going to memorize prayers, you have to learn how to do it without just rotely, you know, like I can say the Lord's Prayer without even paying attention. Although at a wedding once, I actually skipped it and got one to it. I messed it up once uh, with some people that were Anglicans. So they were, believe me, I was the Antichrist. And... Uh, Uh, but mo most important to understand is Jesus is not just, it, it, there's nothing wrong with memorizing the Lord's Prayer. But what he's giving us is an outline or a blueprint for prayer. Uh, learning, you know, uh, I used to drive people nuts. Like when, I, when we bought our current house uh, that we've lived in 32 years now, um, and we only had two of our four kids uh, when we moved in there. And our youngest child is 29 or 30 now. She'll be 30 at the end of this month, right? Is that right? No, 29 at the end of this month. I always get that. It's confusing because she was born on December 31st. Um, gets me a little messed up on calculating the year. So, um, but I remember, like, I had scaled diagrams of every room in our house with scale cutouts for where the furniture went. <laughs> and when, we, when, when all the people in the church helped us move into the house, there was a guy in each room who had the diagram who was with a tape measure directing exactly where the couch went and the things and all that. And... Uh, you know, if you ever see my closet, I spent 30 hours planning that closet and making scale diagrams of it uh, before it was built. But uh, I'm a little bit neurotic, but uh, just a little. So, um, the point is this the Lord's Prayer is a blueprint, it's a model. And, uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's fine to call it, I call it the Lord's Prayer pattern. You could call it the Lord's Prayer model. But it's not just a prayer to, to um, um, be recited. It's a prayer to guide us what to pray about. So if you recall, the last time I spoke at 1030 was November 22nd, which I think was two Sundays ago, is that right? And we got through R and Father. <laughs> um, I'm hoping to uh, get past just reviewing those and go on to who art in heaven or who is in heaven today. Maybe. 
I do want to add to our discussion about R. Because if you notice throughout the prayer, uh, in your outline, look at Roman numeral three, and you'll notice where it says, today teach us to pray. The scriptures below are a blend from Luke's version of the Lord's prayer teaching or model or prayer pattern. And the red verses are the, uh, are the verses that are in Matthew um, that are not included in Luke's version. So Matthew's is a more complete rendering of it. Uh, you know, Luke, Luke is going for the Reader's Digest condensed version of, uh, of uh, the prayer. And if you go to some of the older English translations like King James Bible, uh, Young's Literal Translation, the Geneva Bible, either the 1560 version or the uh, 15, what is it, 98 version? They made one toward the end of the century. I forget if it was 98 or 99 that it's dated. But all of those... Uh, actually play a little loose with the, man, the Greek manuscript, and they add lines into Luke's version to make it resemble Matthew's version a little more closely. And, you know, there's a teaching out there that some Christians actually believe that has held back a lot of Christians from growing, that the King James is the only good translation in this kind of thing. And, and there's a number of reasons why that will hinder your growth if you don't, aren't smarter than that. Um, but in, in the, the King James Bible actually adds things that are not in the Greek text it was made from uh, to make Luke's version sound like more like Matthew's version. And they deliberately did that, even though it's not in the, the, the Textus Receptus or Stephan's text that the King James was made from, uh, which if you know anything about Erasmus, you could, you know, it's worth studying how the, how the Greek translation was put back together for, for the making of the King James Bible and the Young's Literal and the Geneva Bible and so forth. But they deliberately added things that weren't in the Greek text uh, in those older translations to make Luke's version sound more like Matthew's version. So the modern ver- good versions like New American Standard or English Standard or uh, that kind of thing do not do that. Just so you, that, that, there's a lot of, re, like, there's a, a, if you enjoy this kind of thing, it's worth studying a little bit how different translations were made and what the pro advantages and disadvantages of different texts are. Um, so, if you notice, the word our Father is not just in the first, but it's all through. Our Father who art in heaven Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we, ourselves, also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead me, no, us, not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, no, us from evil. So uh, the first person is in the plural throughout. What we have, uh, this is a uniquely American thing. America kind of did the whole, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps, and uh, there, there was an emphasis in colonial America that has stayed in our culture deeply to this day that I don't need any help. 
I pulled myself up from my own bootstraps. Again, someone reached out to me for help this week, but uh, that was four or five days after they needed some help, and they were living with some guys that could have helped them all along. But we don't think like that in America because we're radical individualists. And so, and God will give us people, sometimes a spouse, sometimes a roommate, sometimes a friend, who he's designed to help us, but a lot, of, a lot of times we're too defensive or whatever to take the help. And uh, I, I've been thinking kind of recently, in fact, I'm, uh, unfortunately, Christiana's in the, so Daniel, make sure she hears this, uh, she's in the children's church, but I'm going to have a brainstorming session with Christiana and a few others about some, some things, one of which is what are we doing well and what are we not doing well? One of the deceptions we can fall into as a church is this. If, because of the nature of our American Christianity today and all the manifestations thereof, sometimes we're doing a little better than other versions. I think we do community better than most churches I know today. But I was in churches in the 70s and the 80s that did community better than we do. And more importantly, if you read the epistles carefully, almost all the churches in the New Testament did community better than we do, with possibly the exception of the Corinthians. And, that, and I'm not even sure if we do, you know, I think the Corinthian letter is quite appropriate for American Christianity, both First and Second Corinthians. And so our standard doesn't need to be that we're doing a little better than someone else. Uh, our standard needs to be what the Bible would take it to. And I, I actually want to say that I think we do community. Uh, there's a lot of room for growth. I love 1 Thessalonians 4.8 where, uh, boy, I'm not going to get to my notes. Am I? This stuff's good, though. I hope you're taking notes. Very good. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, Now regarding loving one another, you're taught by God to love one another, and indeed you are loving one another. But then he says, So go home and have a good day. Order pizza, put your feet up. No, he doesn't. He says, Excel still more. So I, I honestly think that we do, most people in our church do community better than when they started coming to our church. But if our standard would be biblical Christianity, I think we have a lot of room for growing in how we do community. And one of, it, one of those things is just how rebukable are you? Like, can someone confront you and you take it well and it really halts you in your tracks and so forth? Uh, you know, are you good at getting someone to pray for you to help, to help you? You don't necessarily have to go to your pastor when you're having some struggles. You probably live, you know, you, you know, if you're a single guy, you could say, Sam, Robbie, would you pray for me? Or with me? For you is probably not as good as with you. So uh, that, um, that's all I want to review on the word are, is that it's are, we, us, throughout the whole prayer. Father, 
why does it emphasize the Father? So uh, we have a prayer meeting at 8.30 that uh, Leah and um, Adam and Emily Furlow take turns leading the worship. And Adam chose a song uh, today, how, Oh, How Good It Is. And I asked him to sing the last stanza over again because it ends with, We all share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. Uh, you know, in Matthew, when Jesus presents himself to be water baptized, the Heavenly Father speaks over Jesus as the Spirit descends on him like a dove and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's quoting Isaiah 42 1. Uh, in whom my soul delights. And uh, it's one of the great Trinitarian passages in Scripture. I think it's Matthew 3.17, something like that. But the truth is, we pray to the Father, but we have to go through the Son. There's, you know, Austin can't give his petition to God except on the basis that he has a standing invite through the Son of God. And if one of us were to be so presumptuous as to approach God on any other basis but the great sacrifice of the sinless Lamb of God, we would deserve to be killed. And so, you know, the scriptures both in Hebrews and 1 John that says Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us are very important. Because as John Bradbury approaches the throne of God, just as the uh, angels around the God's throne are about to slay him, Jesus says, no, no, he's clean because of what I did. He's welcome here. He, he can come right in anytime. And there's all kind of verses, especially in the book, book of Hebrews, that teach that. If you've never thought about that with the book of Esther, you know, what she's basically doing is risking her life to go before the king because you just can't come before the king uh, uninvited. And, and through Christ, you have a standing invite. And you have the right robes and the right attire and the right cleanliness and the right shower and deodorant and, and everything else to, uh, be, to be allowed to come in. So you go to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The difference between religion and reality is if we're in the Spirit. There's a reason why one of the major wars going on in the spiritual realm is to keep people from getting baptized in the Spirit and to keep people from learning how to walk in the Spirit and I know Christians that have been Christians way longer than two or three weeks that are not baptized in the Spirit. And I know people who are baptized in the Spirit who aren't very good at staying filled with the Spirit. But you must come by the Spirit because God is a Spirit, John 4, 23. And those who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and truth. And the difference between religion and reality is doing it in the Spirit. So when he says, our Father, 
he's actually talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because you can't approach the Father except through the Son and by the Spirit. All those words, through and by, are important. There's a lot of uh, war in the church about things that are uh, a false dichotomy. Hopefully you know what I mean by a false dichotomy. You know, am I going to have vegetables, meat, or fruit? Well, probably I need a little of all that. You know, that would be a false dichotomy. So uh, some Christians, especially uh, Presbyterians and, and, and other groups that are very Scripture-oriented, would talk about uh, charismatics and people who are more in, oriented toward the Spirit as being too experience-based. And some experience-based Christians are very, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the joke about uh, certain kinds of uh, groups are that they're the frozen chosen and so forth. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is, is that informational truth is foundational, but if it doesn't translate to experiential experience, you know, true experience, then it's worthless. And the Bible is both and, not either or, when it comes to uh, information or, or experience. The Bible, you have to have the right theology to have the right experience. So, uh, the Bible is actually very experience-based. Now, those are the two points I covered two weeks ago, but I didn't cover any of what I just covered two weeks ago. That's all new and extra, no extra charge. So let's move on to who in the King James, who art in heaven, in modern translations, who is in heaven, and discuss that a little bit. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and approach to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. You know, there's a proverb that says, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps his mouth shut. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I, I remember uh, a particular brother in the uh, Date New Covenant Church, which became Christ the King, and, and, uh, who was very uh, quiet. And everybody thought he had incredible wisdom. The truth is, he was just quiet. And unlike me and so many others, he never said anything foolish, therefore. Because to open your mouth, if, you do, if you're one who likes to uh, socialize and so forth, you will say things that you regret every day. You know, I think there's an old saying like, better to keep your peace and have people think you're wise than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. But uh, <laughs> draw near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. Do not be quick with your mouth or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's a pretty intense verse, isn't it? I've always loved that. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. So, let's discuss a couple of theological points. A lot of people today have made a evil religion out of being stupid. Like, that's, like, I don't like your church because you guys use theological words 
and you guys challenge people to read and so forth. There's nothing particularly holy about not knowing the Bible or, or the truth or God. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, and you're not happier when you're ignorant, necessarily. <laughs> but with much wisdom and much knowledge comes much pain. But it's a pain worth wrestling through. Very much worth wrestling through. So here's, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to give you some big theological words, whether you want them or not. The first one is, is transcendence. What the heck is that? Transcendence. Uh, if you want to, like, really tell someone you're impressed with them, you can go like, wow, man. You're transcendent. <laughs> um, something I probably would have, in my pot smoking days, I might have said. Uh, transcendent is this. All, almost every religion of the world outside of Christ and uh, Israel, you know, Hebrew thinking, worships and serves some form of the creation rather than the creator. But our God is not the God of Hinduism. He's not the God of frogs or leaves or trees or whatever. He's not in the creation. He made the creation, and he's outside and separate from it. One of the songs we sang today talked about, rend the heavens and come down. Well, that's... uh, anthropomorphic language it's language that's metaphorical so we can he doesn't need to it's heaven isn't necessarily up there and he doesn't need to come down uh although even jesus used language like that and he said no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended and paul quotes that in ephesians 4 and so forth but the truth is heaven is another dimension and it's outside and I always say above, but it's outside and distinct from, from nature and from the material. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And spiritual things aren't um, limited by the same geographical things. So, you know, we can have a, uh, uh, a video call to, to our brothers and sisters in India and the Holy Spirit can be in that meeting, in our midst, because he's not about geography. Transcendent is outside and distinct from the natural dimension. But it very much, the natural dimension is very much dependent upon the spiritual nature of God Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Even with the uh, neutrons, electrons, and protons of the atom, scientists don't know exactly what holds every atom together. But I'll tell you that Christ holds every atom together. If Christ were to forget about you for a split second, you would disintegrate. And the atoms of your body would go into a billion places in a billion untraceable locations throughout the universe. The law of gravity works because of Christ. The law of inertia or the law of uh, 
you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction and so forth. All of that works because, uh, not because of just impersonal physical laws, but because of personal spiritual God has created the universe that way, and he actively makes those laws work every minute of every day. Now, modern people don't think like that, but that's actually the, the Bible's way of looking at things. Um, transcendence means um, that he's absolutely other. Imminence. That means that God is very present everywhere and always. Uh, I'm working on getting a friend of mine named Roger Ely to come and do a concert for us, but he lives in the Carolinas, so hopefully we'll get this pulled off. But he does a version of Psalm 139 that is my favorite piece of music ever. And you all know that I have like, I have around 4,000 classical CDs. Um, I like music. And uh, I have like 10 different versions of Beethoven's Nine Symphonies. <laughs> and, I, and I listen to them to compare small different things and so forth. And, and the differences in their interpretations and whatever. So, of all music ever, this my friend named Roger Ely's version of Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from my pre- your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. Do you know theologians almost universally agree that hell is the absence of the presence of God? But there's a problem in a lot of Christian circles, you know, uh, where we don't define our terms precisely enough. Actually, God's presence is very much there in hell. But the resident's ability to, to discern God's presence is completely absent. Did you hear the difference? He can actually see in hell. But what hell is, is his not allowing us to have any perception of him. And that's why, because he is inapproachable light, it's described as total darkness. Not that it's geographically or physically actually total darkness, uh, but there is no manifest presence of God there. So imminence is is different than manifest presence. Manifest presence, one of the reasons we start a prayer meeting with Adam leading us in worship or uh, Deanna leading us in worship or or whatever is because through worship we draw near to the presence of God. Not that he wasn't there already. The problem is we, our perception of him needs help. That I do, I see over here that uh, Sam Moante and Austin are wearing glasses. Ruthann's looking down, so I can't tell she has glasses. And no, do you have glasses? I can't tell. No, she is. She does have glasses. Byron has glasses. Now, all of these people wearing glasses, myself included, Catherine, Teresa, Bethany, their glasses don't change the the shape, size of anything. But their glasses very much help their, pre- their perception of it, right? I had a 
little chat with Emily Furlow a month or two back that we happened to mention in passing that she started wearing glasses more regularly. Why? So she could see better. <laughs> Duh. Uh, <laughs> you know, now there are people like my daughters used to buy these glasses that that didn't have any prescription in them, you know, and have different ones for the different fashions that they were, you know, adorning themselves with that week or whatever. There are people who wear glasses just to be cool or whatever. A lot of people wear sunglasses for that reason. But for the most part, manifest presence is different than imminence. God is omnipresent. And it's not like peanut butter where you, if you take a certain amount of peanut butter and spread it over the toast, the bigger the piece of bread, the thinner the peanut butter gets, <laughs> unless you add more peanut butter. God is 100% fully manifest right here, right now. Yet, he's fully manifest in 20,000 different Christian meetings at least around the world right now. And it's not like some of him is with us and some of him is with there. I, you know, struggle all the time with, uh, you, you know, being with someone, but my heart's not present with them. <laughs> you, know, I'm th- you know, I had certain visitors and phone calls near, during the Ohio State game uh, yesterday. So. And a couple of them were important enough that I, you know, took the call. And I'm like, you know, and I hope you all know that I really, really like Jonathan Burks, but they scheduled his bachelor thing during the Ohio State game. There's no way I was coming. <laughs> like, if you really want Greg to be present, take, take into account college football season, the March Madness, and, uh, and the baseball playoffs. Other than that, I don't care about sports. but I'm not going to miss the final four for your, for your wedding. <laughs> don't, don't get married on the day of the final four. Like I, I can tell you eight years from now when the, when the Saturday games for the final four are going to be. So check, check those things out before you schedule. Um, because I'm not imminent. I'm not good at being two places at once, and from what I understand, none of the rest of you are either. So do we, you need to understand that God is imminent. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. <laughs> he knows if you've been bad or good. So walk in grace. Um, omnipresence, imminence. That, our Father who art in heaven, you need to understand that you're talking to someone who has the power to do anything he wants. If he wants to heal your cancer, there's nothing he can't do. Nothing.
Ah, boy, it's getting kind of late, so I I don't know if I'm going to go on to holy is your name. Um, Probably not. Let's uh, discuss a couple things about holiness, then we'll pick up there. So these are lead-ins to the next one. Holy means to be set apart to God. Therefore, nobody in this room is very holy. And all holiness comes from him and is through him and it's to him. And holiness isn't following a legalistic prescription of rules or even a godly set of rules apart from a relational experience with the presence of God. Holiness is by definition a relational word. You know, as I've gotten older, I often joke with my wife, although she doesn't say, you're darn right, brother. Uh, But I often say, you know, I'm boring. You know, I used to get invited to every fellowship event and every party. I rarely get invited to many people in the church's parties or fellowship events anymore. Because the truth is, I'm an old guy, and I'm not that fun anymore. You know, I don't drink much or whatever. I'm, I'm, I just sit there. So, uh, you know, I'm not the kind of person that people think about, like, let's have a party. Let's get Greg to come. When I was young, people thought, we're having a party. Let's get Greg to come. <laughs> now they say, let's get Teresa to come or something. But, <laughs> but there's a quote there from John Wimber that we'll discuss next time. Holiness originates from God. And if we miss the fundamental truth that he's the source of holiness then we will think that our spiritual disciplines in our, uh, in, our, in our doing the right things and our checking off this list of do's and don'ts will make us more holy, and that's just not true. Holiness always is in relationship to God. So you can do all the right things. Has anybody ever, like, served or given with a bad attitude? <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, if you haven't, then you're probably not breathing. Right? So that's, uh, you know, a thing the Bible calls dead works. And there's lots of other ways to, like, I, if you want to, to know more about dead works, see me at lunch. Like, I know how to do dead works. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, so next time we'll talk more about what holiness is. And uh, uh, let me just tell you that on the three points we've talked about are that things are not as radically individualistic as we make them out to be in America. Father, uh, everyone I know has fatherhood issues. We have lousy fatherhood in America today. I've never met a, a person that I would say is an exceptionally great father. I've never met someone like that. And uh, I, the, my number one goal 
before I had kids was to be an excellent father. And I would say I got about a B minus, maybe a C plus. And I worked hard at it. But I, you know, my kids have been grown up and gone for about 11, 12 years now. And just in that short period of time, I could tell you that right now I'd be a better father than I was 10 years ago because I've grown in the Lord by the grace of God. Nobody's a great father, but God our father. And so one of the things you've got to do with fatherhood is you can't be thinking of God through the, your perceptions of your own father or fathers you've known. You've got to do a rethink from the beginning about what a father is. And your own natural father may or may not have had some good fatherly qualities, but even the best of fathers fall short of God. Read Hebrews 12 if you want more explanation of that. So anyway, our Father who art in heaven, I guess I'm just trying to say in closing that all three of those ideas could be thought about more, and I certainly didn't give you all there is to know about those three ideas. Hopefully, as you read your Bible and you ask God for insight and wisdom and you grow in the Lord, all three of those ideas will become, uh, you'll become much more uh, biblically educated in all three of those. Uh, you know, the whole plural concept, we don't do community great, and I, I don't know of any Christian communities right now that I would say do community great. But, um, it's, it's, that makes sense? And this, the whole thing of transcendence, there's a very powerful thing in our sin nature. Uh, it's also because of the nature of the church today. But every one of us at, underestimate God horribly. I would not be articulate enough to help you understand how sub-biblical our ideas about God are. Did you hear that? So part of what we're all challenged to do is grow in the true knowledge of God, as Josiah started the meeting with today.